Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Everything. Well, first of all, I have to say, like, I, and she'll never listen to this, so I had, like, this really hard thing with my sister in terms of, oh, it's just hard. Family stuff is hard. You know, I am just really working hard in therapy to work through some of the trauma that I experienced, and some of it is directly related to things that my sister did. And I'm not saying I didn't do shit either. I'm not saying that. I am saying that I don't want to go to Chicago for to to for my niece's graduation and I told her and my niece is like don't come I'm moving there in two months don't That's come. What I'm thinking she's coming to LA. So my sister wanted me there for her but here's the thing in order for that to happen you have to have as we know emotional shit in the bank for someone to want to come and do the thing for you when the person graduating doesn't want you there or doesn't care and it's not enough I, I don't have it in me. And I, and I just said that because, and I said, if you want to talk, she said, you know, my, it's been on my heart to, it's all text. It's never a call, been on my heart to tell you that I'm really sad that you're not coming. And I said, Oh, we're opening the door to what's on our heart. Okay, great. Um, I have been working through all this shit in therapy. And um, if you want to talk about it, great. If not, uh, but just suffice it to say, it's not a good time for me to come. I am done taking care of people. I, I, I just, I love California. I will get on a plane for certain things. If you needed me to get on a plane, I would be on a plane in two seconds. If Sasha and Chrissy needed me, I would go on a plane. But I am not because there's stuff in the bank account of love and life. I get it. I trust it. I have been taken care of. And so I am willing now to take care of back. But you, I'm so, I'm just so like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done trying to take care of people that, that have done no caretaking. Like I can't, I'm not going to do it. You got to give to get. That's not how life is. So she, she, she did not write back. She did not write back. And that's Okay. That is okay. Like I, you know, it's interesting. It's like, oh, people want to talk about feelings. Oh, we, I could sit. I love talking about feelings. Let's go. But um, what I'm not going to do is pretend. Yeah. And honestly, like without really knowing whether this is true, I just feel like sometimes when people say things like it's been on my heart, I just feel like you're just aping something that you heard somebody else say. You don't even really know what that means. Like if you really took a minute to look at what's on your heart, you know, you might, instead of it just being like, I'm disappointed in something you did, you would really be trying to figure out why the dynamic that led to this situation. Anyway, so I just have to do what I have to do, you know? So, um, okay. So the, the, the commercial was really fun. So part of I the thing that was fun, like, you know, that's the thing that you don't really expect it to be is fun. Okay super fun. And I'll tell you why it is completely not about 
as we know, the thing that's happening. It is about what is happening inside of us while we're doing the thing. And I really, well, first of all, you know, to be very transparent, like there's no lines. So my phobia is about forgetting lines and being ashamed and then wanting to die and having the whole production throw like pitchforks at me, right? Like that is my, okay. So there's no line. So I know that that's not going to happen. So like I'm starting from a better place. And then my, you know, it's, it's, um, an early call, which is great for me because then you don't sit around and think. And everyone was lovely. Like everyone, because I was reflecting back to my theater school time, right? And my first job out of theater school was working on early edition. Oh no, ER was the first one, I think. And ER was um, a nightmare for me because of all the things we talk about on this podcast. I was insecure. I was a jerk because I was insecure. Uh, but mostly I was just straight up so insecure that everything I did was tinged with a horrible, like, feeling, right? And um, that comes through. Like, no, people feel that shit, right? So even if you hide it. So I don't have that now. Oh, because I might have if we hadn't done this podcast. And I might have if um, there were a lot of lines and, like, I was really felt pressure. But what I felt was, like, oh, I'm... I, it was my first experience in a long time of feeling like I am a part of a whole. I have my one part to do here. I'm not responsible for any of this other shit. Uh, I am responsible for taking direction from the director, Ben, who was hilarious, Australian, British guy, hilarious guy. And I'm, that is my job. And the first AD who will tell me where to move and what to do. And to not spill on my costume. Like, that is it. And so I do those things. And I, I and I did take the direction. I was wrapped in two hours. So I went, I know. I went, it's an 11-day shoot. I, I'm not shooting. I wish I was shooting more than one day. Look, this is one of those instances where I wish I'd be asked back. Mostly I'm wishing secretly to be fired so I don't have to go through the hell of it. But I was like, oh, maybe the last minute. They're not going to add me. It's all set. They can't just be like, hey, bring Chen back for no reason in this million billion dollar commercial. So, but um, I basically, you know, just did this little thing and then did some improv and the clients, this is fantastic. I, I just, the world is a strange place. The clients were in a bus on, cause I was outside and the clients and the, and the, um, ad people. And then the client were in this bus with monitors watching me and then giving directions to the director to give to me. So I don't hear them, which is good. Cause they usually probably say things like, you know, they're just blunt. They're like, that sucks. Tell her not to do that ever again. No talk about that. Okay. That was lame, you know, which is great. I don't need to hear any of that shit. But then, so then what Ben would do would be interpret what they were saying and give me notes. And then we'd go from there. And it was like easy peasy. And I loved the outfit they picked for me. And, um, everyone was lovely. Look, look, Everyone was lovely because of a lot of things, but mostly I have to say like the feeling is, which I fucking hate because you know how we feel about when people say new agey, but like, um, yeah, but the feeling is that when I come at it and I am genuinely like, I was very prayerful. I was like, okay, whoever's running the show, like, let me be of service. Like, I don't fucking know what that means here, but let me just do the thing and like go home. Like, that's it. And I don't have to be special. I don't have to be the star. I just want to do my job and do and try to interpret what this man is telling me to do because that's my job and then go home. And um, 
everyone was lovely. And it was two hours, like two and a half hours. Well, I would imagine in addition to not having to worry about the lines, the other thing you probably liked about the improv nature of it is like what they're saying to you from the beginning is just for you to be you. And two things occur to me about being on a commercial. Usually the lines are probably cheesy and therefore hard to, I mean, that's gotta be some of the hardest acting, right? Like when you're having to really act like you love or like sell a thing, but without selling it or like, be you, but like less funny kind of, or something. Right. And you just, they were just inviting you to be completely authentically yourself, which is always a good starting point for you. And yeah. And then not having, like, like you were saying, it's not really about your acting. It's about your presence and about your relationship with the other people who were making it. And it sounds like they did a great job of making everybody feel comfortable. So did you, does this mean you didn't meet any of the other 10 people or whatever? So I met, um, yes, I met them at the fitting. And then we now have like a little um, Instagram group. Cause we're like keeping track of like how much they're going to run it. And like, we're just keeping tap. And, and so then I heard the, one of my um, people who was sh- shooting later that day had like trials and tribulations just due to like props that she, she had to like ride a bike, like, craziness if i had to write oh no she but she's very fit and like very so but she you know everyone's worried they want to do a good job and like and they don't want and they want the shit to run and they don't want any problems because it's a big payday so um we talked her through it and then my other friend shoots today a new friend like you know we just met um, but lovely humans everyone's super funny and super lovely and like regular folks and you know, um, it was a great experience. Now, look, look, it's interesting. This happens. Maybe it happens a lot for some people, but like it's it's like winning the lotto, right? It's happened to me. I'm 46. It's happened to me twice. Um, and that's great. But I don't expect that it will happen again. But I am just grateful I got to participate. And I'm also really grateful because like the casting director and I, you know, I'll say her, I think I said her name and I can say it again. She's amazing. Jody Sonnenberg. You would love her. Like she is dope. She's like one of us, like a regular lady, uh, maybe younger than us. I'm probably flattering myself, but like she's younger and, um, but like, just like regular, not what I would call like the 65 year old blonde lady who like fucking hates her life at this point and is like fuck you to everybody which I I look I don't blame you everyone's got their shit but she's not that and so I feel like that was how the and I sent her a little gift because I feel like that was how she ran the callbacks and so it makes a difference yeah yeah You know, you never can go wrong to just be kind and make people feel comfortable. Never. I don't know know why that took us collectively as a human race so long to figure out. And why we're still figuring it out. Yeah. And also like, it doesn't actually, I, somehow we, we, we've, we've um, come to the conclusion that like business and that cannot exist, but actually it's a better business model to be kind and make people feel comfortable. Unless maybe you're like in a, a lie detector test or, uh, uh, you know, career or um, in court, but even then. Yeah, I, I have a sense too that that might be because we've also labored under the delusion that um, business isn't personal, but everything is personal in the sense that you're a person and that you react to things with your personal lens and your personal experience. Um, that thing that you said way, way, way in the beginning of our recording this podcast of like every time you have even a slightly emotionally charged 
interaction with somebody, which is almost all interactions, that you're just doing a recapitulation of some previously templating, you know, situation that you were in so that you're likely to then have all the same reactions that you, you know what I'm saying? So I do. The, this idea that when two people are interacting in any way, that it's not always definitely personal is, I think, fatuous and really everybody just needs to acknowledge the humanity of the person that they're in front yeah. of, whether for a big payday or for, you know, can you excuse me, get the marshmallows. You could tell um, that you read a lot because you see things like fatuous, which is fantastic. What does that mean? Well, yeah, it means like it's, oh, I'll have to look it up the exact definition, but it means like it's like it's falsely proposed to be something. I love that word. I mean, and it real, it's a really, it's a thing for me that I'm, I'm working on in terms of like, read more Bosworth, like Mm -hmm. read more things so that you know what that means. And also I love that, that you read a lot. I love that. I adore people that read a lot because I just, my mother was an avid reader. And so I went the opposite direction. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Well, I honestly, I read as much as I do and listen to podcasts and all kinds of because really the bulk of what I have to do in my day is like be a, a, a housewife. Right. So right. it's very boring, very tedious, very like not interesting work. So in order to keep it interesting, I have to be. What's working, sometimes, what's working for you? Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, hmm, I am always. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's almost a, like, what would I do if I didn't have those things and I had to get through one of my, it would be hard. I would make an adjustment, but it, it would, it would be hard. But anyway, that that's just, you know, that's the reality. You have a master's degree and yet your job is to, you know, get everybody to school on time and do the dishes and make quesadillas for lunch. Hey, let me run this by you. Do you think I'm insane that I love Marv? Oh, really puzzling about why you identify as Marv character. I'm like, at the beginning, I'm going, okay, 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 okay. Hmm. Hmm. And again, I'm going, wait. Uh, this what did I miss? So tell me exactly what you loved about this guy. I mean, I'm not saying that he didn't have good qualities or no, that no. He, he was a he was a paranoid schizophrenic, probably. But okay, I don't, I don't. He was definitely paranoid and probably schizophrenic and psychotic and needed medication. Okay, that part I don't identify with. But what the thing that I liked? It, okay, specifically, I liked this. He built his weapon was not a gun. It was with, for him. Okay, it was for him. He did start shooting at the. Okay, wait, 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 that's not very true. Okay, so he did start shooting at them, but only after they tried to attack his bulldozer. But the point is, what do I? I like that he built a fortress. Okay, this is the thing. yeah. No, that was cool. It was impressive. He it's built. Impressive. So, and we talked a little bit about, it, but he like welded himself into a fucking bulletproof bulldozer that he fucking built in secret, and was working on it. Here's the thing. I think I identify with like working the um something to work on something specifically in secret for so long and then seal himself into a fortress and then bulldoze the town. I know that it's wrong and that he 
destroyed a lot of people's lives because he destroyed their legacy, their property, their whatever. I know it's wrong, but there is something satisfying about the fact of, of, of he warned them. Now look, he's a lunatic. So warnings from a lunatic, what are you going to do? But he did warn them. And then he proceeded, they couldn't stop him. He was an unstoppable, undeniable force at the end. Yeah. I mean, I will say the thing that I think every human could probably relate to is he found a way to make his point <laughs> such that nobody could stop him, even a equally heavy piece of machinery. <laughs> Remember they were like, bring out the big boys. And the big boy, he just pushed the huge thing away. And I was like, yes. He was like, fuck you. You think you're. And he, and he thought of everything. And he had the fan. And he had the vents. And he had the video cameras. And he even had, like, he'd even thought about, you know, um, what was the thing they said? Like, oh, he even, oh, he, he, he built a thing with compressed air to blow away the dust from the camera. So I mean, could see the- <laughs> he thought of everything. He thought of everything. And and there was something about it that did kind of remind me of my dad. Not that he did anything like I, that. But- yes. So what it what reminded me of my dad was you know there's just there's like two kinds of people in the world. There's people who get real involved in like zoning dramas yes, and, yes. and condo boards. That kind of thing is really interesting to me. And I, through my dad, I just knew a bunch of old man, men who talk like this. My dad talked like that. He said, he says, and I says, and they says, my dad talked like that. And my dad had a hot tub and my dad would sit in it and plan his revenge yep. for people that wronged him. So there was that part of it was endearing, but yeah, he was quite mentally ill. And he, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like I don't like any of those no, people. No. I thought that they were all terrible people. No, and I like how some people really believed in Marv. His snowmobiling friends were like, "Dude, Marv told him like I mean he was a good guy," and they just and those people are crazy too. Like everyone is bonkers. Like I think the idea that there was somebody who just like man, I'm just living a snowmobile. <laughs> just listen this day is only granted to me so that i could snowmobile later i mean, I mean it's so specific and niche it's like it's not even like retire it's like snowmobile so okay so that leads me to also tell you a little teeny story of revenge i think i like revenge because i feel like as a child i never could get revenge i could never be heard and like you said like no one was ever forced to listen to what i had to say i i never felt heard right okay fine so this is a story oh my god i was telling this at a party the other night because we were talking about breakup stories okay my friend called me and said i did something this is in like i don't know 20 maybe 2000 something around there um and said uh, or even earlier um and said i did something really bad in new york city and i was like what and and she was like this is so she had been involved this is kaka cuckoo crazy and it's Fine, because I won't mention her name. So she had been in, she had been um, engaged to an asshole in Manhattan. She lived in Manhattan. He lived in Manhattan. And off air, I'll tell you who this is because I think you might know them. Anyway, so um, so she, she had been engaged to this douchebag, right? And they had this this beautiful apartment on Fifth Avenue, right? That she had inherited, okay? And 
and they got into this thing, but she had put him on the deed or whatever. And in the process, and he had a fair and he was gross, but he ended up getting the apartment in Manhattan. It was hers, but he took it from her. So she was so livid and she didn't know what to do. And she didn't tell anybody she did that, but she was like, listen, can I just come get my shit out before you take it over? And he was like, yeah. So what she did was take a big, she went in with just a bucket and he was like, what the fuck? And she was like, oh no, you know, I'm just like going to put shit in there, whatever. She had something like 14 dozen eggs. Okay. And she dumped him in the bucket. And she stirred it around and she had a, a turkey baster and she put egg, wet egg in the cracks of every floorboard, every piece of floorboard in the whole big ass Fifth Avenue apartment. She lined with, with raw egg. Okay. And she left, she left. So then it seeps into the wood and it fucking starts to stink. And I didn't know any of this was going on until way after. And she felt the need to confess year, like a year later. And they couldn't figure it out. So they started. So, of course, he was like, what what, what kind of piece of shit apartment did you inherit? And she was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so then the, he got people in and they started to tear up sections of the wood to figure out what died underneath. It was not. It was in the cracks. They had to fucking, he spent a million dollars re-tearing up the floors and then having to, and it was like, she got her fucking revenge. And I am like, I know. I love a good revenge story too. I once accidentally did revenge. Wait, was that the end of the story? Yes. The bottom line is she was like, I I was like, you know, so-and-so, I don't think it was that bad. So I'm going to try to tell the story in a way that really removes all the identifying um, characteristics. But I one time had a um, bad interaction with a company (laughs) and um, I wanted to work for them and I was really qualified to work for them. And I, and I kind of knew them in a way. It was the kind of situation where like, if you're not going to hire this person at a minimum, you send them a really nice letter saying why. And it was like nothing, no, no response, zero zip zilch acting like, you know, just but I, acting like I was a non-entity. Sometime later I had occasion to work at that company in a different capacity, a backdoor, like through a subcontractor. Now I, I did not intend to exact any revenge on this company. But I was having a really bad period at the time that I was working there. And I was going to the bathroom like every 10 minutes to change my tampon. And one day I left and I got called at home to say we wouldn't be returning the next day because somebody had clogged up the whole toilet toilet system such that it was a river of shit and tampons coming out of the bathroom and like down the hallway fantastic through the doors and fantastic second of oh shit that was me and then and then just like a oh i wonder who did that that's um God, that's horrible. And they had to spend a, a ton of money repairing and replacing and and Good. and 
getting it Good. back to you know what also this reminds me to say fucking think of fucking septic systems that can accommodate women's tampon products so we don't have to wrap them up touch them wrap them up and put them in a fucking separate bag you it's, fucking it's honestly i men have no idea what it would be like to have to have to do that and i'm not gonna- my dad used to say my dad used to say we have plumbing problems because you 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 all flush the flush the um cotex down i'm like first of all you fucking idiot it's not cotex and no one's putting maxi pads down the shut up it's funny and anyway it's similar it's similar to me accidentally getting revenge in the theater school when I kicked in the door. I have never done revenge directly, but I have acted, it turns out I've acted out revenge on more more than one occasion. And it was actually just as satisfying. Ladies and gentlemen, do we have a show for you? My, my, my. Not only do we have a fantastic actor who's a great storyteller and has had an interesting life, we have Mr. Milchik himself, Tramel Tillman, star of one of the very best television shows to ever exist, Severance. I could go on and on, but I won't. It's all there in the conversation. So please enjoy our conversation with Tramel Tillman. Congratulations, Tramel Tillman. You survived theater school. Amazing. And you also were, you, it was a big milestone for your program. I read, if what if what I can read on the internet is true, you were the first African-American to graduate from this MFA program. Is that right? Well, I was one of the first African-American men to graduate from the program. There were two women um, in previous classes before me, uh, Cicely Ash and Shinnery Jackson. Um, but the year that I was there from 2011 to 2014, I was the only African-American in the program. And I had asked, I said, you know, where are all the, the guys, you know? And um, they said, I don't really think we had many guys come through the program, um, black men. And from that point on, after I was there, every class had black men, black women, and then expanded and Latino men and yeah. women and Asian as well. I mean, so. we, we, it's, it's not like shocking. It's like wrong, but it's not shocking. And also yeah. I was just reflecting like when Gina and I are older than you are, but when we went to uh, the theater conservatory at DePaul, um, I think I was the only Latina and stuff. And you were, yeah, you forever. Were. And then I was like yeah. forever. And so, um, yeah. it is it is so gross now and but we were that was 1998 so i was like under the false assumption that oh 2014 it's gonna be it's a different world oh no 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 no, so it's not oh man okay now that was in tennessee right that's in tennessee yes but you're are you from tennessee i am not i'm originally from maryland so i was born in dc raised in maryland and um, trickled on down to Tennessee through like this crazy route. Um, Wait, I, were you going to be a surgeon, or did I make that up in my brain? No, you okay. are absolutely right. Okay, you, look, the research. Come <laughs> on, y'all, that's great. Yeah, I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, and I went to school at Xavier University in New Orleans because they're number one for sending African Americans to medical school. 
So I said, you know, this is a school that I need to go to. And I was in biology, what is it, Bi bio lab, chem lab, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. It was those lab classes that were three hours, two, two days a week, and I wanted to gouge my eyes out. And, you know, this isn't for me. Was yeah. it just bor boring as shit? Or were you like, this is also... Because for me, like, I can't add is my problem. Uh -huh. Like, I'm terrible. And so yeah. Um, yeah. was it that? Or was it just boring as hell? It was boring as hell. Um, we were in this basically windowless room. Um, fluorescent lights. It was like severance. It was like severance. And, you know carving up frogs or, or balancing equations and math and I ain't never really been friends. So it was just like, I don't want to do this. And, but so, so there were so many people around me I was inspired by because they were passionate about this. They loved this. They lived and breathed chemistry and biology. And I was like, I don't have that same passion and I don't want to devote 10 plus years of my life to something that I'm just like, I don't want to do. And you know? it's such, it's such a commit, like the entire 10 years, you're just working constantly around the clock yes. and not for nothing, yes. but certain specialties of medicine have their, mm, like a certain type of person goes into radiology and a certain type of person goes into orthopedics and yes. I, they're not the nicest people, the orthopedic surgeons, cause they, you know, they have to like get in there and break your bone and oh, right, <laughs> right, reset it. Right, so I think right. maybe you made the right choice and certainly for us because we love everything that you're in i was Thank i you. was telling gina before we got on that i remember you in hunters you were in hunters right i was in hunters yes you were great yes. so i'm obsessed with any kind of um nazi hunting and like weird shit and so okay. i adored <laughs> i adored that and you were fantastic and Thank i was you. also talking about not that you i'm gonna we're gonna have you on here and ask you to talk shit about al pacino because that is not what i'm <laughs> doing but i am saying like we were saying because you do obviously you do theater and you do television and film and that there is this thing of like i guess um people were criticizing um pacino for wearing earpieces on stage when he was doing plays because he couldn't remember yeah. shit and yeah. i don't fault him for that and i also just wondered like what was it like working with because you're you're a trained theater actor what was it like working with someone like al pacino i mean i yeah i mean i i think Al Pacino has earned his stripes to wear earpieces on stage if he needs to. Like, it's like you reach a certain point in your career and, you know, your age where it's give the man yes. some everything. All he like, wants. Just like, yeah. whatever he yeah. wants. If he wants a billboard, he wants me to write yeah. it on a card. Like, just do it. Yeah. Uh, I, agree. I agree. Okay. Okay. We're so, on the same page. Yes. Uh, but I, I didn't have the opportunity to work with him one-on-one -on -one in a scene, but I, I was in the room when we did a table read, and he is such a clown, you know? Really? Like, he's just funny and goofy and came in with wild hair and was just like, okay, what are we reading today? Let's go. You know? I, love I love that. That's perfect. That tracks. Okay, yeah. so from carving up frogs in a windowless room to what you really were meant to do what happened what was the middle what was the middle path in there oh my gosh uh so while i was at Xavier university i had like a come to jesus moment i was like i really want to do what i want to do in life and what is that thing and i remember that i really enjoyed like spirit week in high school so and i would get so involved i would like create things and i loved creating events and decorating and that so i said well maybe i should get into advertising because that's a great vehicle for that and you can convince people and i guess you can help 
people depending sure. on sure i mean you can sometimes selling yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. right 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 right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so i got into advertising i changed my major um i got a devastating phone call from my mom while i was working at express and she said that we lost our house and i can't help you financially uh with your education so I was on my own and I had to figure out how am I going to pay for school? How am I going to, you know, pay extra bills and such? And so I wanted to go to Howard University because I was from that area. And my mom suggested going to Jackson State University because my sister lived there with her husband in Jackson, Mississippi. So Hurricane Katrina had come along, pushed me upward and ended up staying in Mississippi because it was cheaper. I um, got a degree um, in mass communications, graduated summa cum laude, got a job working in, um, in a nonprofit organization, helping kids, was having a great time helping kids and teaching and educating, getting them involved with community engagement. But then I was miserable. Like I was like pulling my hair out and couldn't figure out why am I not happy doing this great things for the community. And I sat down with the head of acting at the time at Jackson and Jackson State University and he said you know are you doing what you're are you doing what you're supposed to be doing in life are you doing the thing that lights your fire and i wasn't and i said and he he said Tramel what is it going to take for you to go and follow that thing that you would do no matter what how did you know this human how did you i'm so super so yeah it's it's so funny because um i was I pledged Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity uh, Incorporated at Jackson State University, and he is also an Alpha. And part of the organization, what we do, we have like regional conventions, and the college brothers get to compete in some of these um, conventions. And so one of the competitions is a speech competition. And so I, they, the chapter put me up to participate in the speech competition. And since this gentleman, Dr. Mark G. Henderson, is a speech theatrical guy he was the best person to serve as a mentor and a guide so So he met me through that that's amazing so my whole thing in life now is if we don't have a mentor we're fucked i i mean i just cannot and it's not a parent because they do their own jobs it's not even a tia it has to for me it's someone that is not related to us usually by blood, but is, um, we are seeing, represents something in us that we want to cultivate, that they are either doing or they can see. And I, uh, it's amazing. So you found this and then then were you like, oh, I got to light my fire. I got to do it. Yeah. I got to light my fire. And he saw, he saw much like my mom, he saw this talent within me and he said, you need to go follow your passion because you will be miserable for the rest of your life. And he, and he was right. He was absolutely right. And I ended up going to grad school and <laughs> it's, it's such a wild route. I went, ended up going to grad school and then the graduate program I was supposed to go to, University of Iowa, I didn't have the funding at the last minute. So they had to resend the offer. I spent two years in Mississippi, again, saving money, getting the legs, doing regional theater, uh, new stage theater. I worked with Jay Lee Productions and kind of getting... The, the girth that I needed so I wasn't as green. And then University of Tennessee, Jed Diamond, the head of acting, popped up. And he was like, why don't you come play with us? Let me tell you something. I'm so, really glad yeah. you did not go to Iowa. I just want to say, having been to Iowa, 
Yeah. No, no. I'll go no, to Tennessee. Oh no. What do you know? You you I don't know that you would have we no. So I no. I'm glad okay. you ended up where you ended up. And Tennessee <laughs> looks like I'm sure it had its own plethora of challenges. Obviously yeah. they did you know that, yeah. but okay. So did you like the school? Did you hate it? What was your master's degree like there? So it was it was a tender process, you know, because I was the only one in the program. It was a culture shock for me, of course. You know, um, everyone in my class was lovely. You know, they were very giving and supportive, but they didn't quite understand exactly where I was coming from and couldn't necessarily speak to the culture in which that I came from. Um, My teachers, it was a lot of they're doing the best they can. But there were so many blind spots and a lot of microaggressions that was happening. I'll give you an example. Okay. This, is, this isn't necessarily a funny anecdote, but it's like funny, ironic anecdote. Okay. So I was doing Putnam County Spelling Bee. And I was playing the comfort counselor, Mitch Mahoney. And this was the first time, was breaking records here, because this was the first time a first-year grad student was in a production on campus. Yes, big deal. University of Tennessee. It's a big deal. Big, yeah, we, deal. That was like so, the same for us. We wouldn't have been in that. Yeah. Yeah. So all eyes are on me, right? Um, I remember the way I was supposed to come in. I came from the back of the house. I had a hoodie on and I would walk through down the VOM on the stage and I would literally hear people say, oh my God, where does this hoodlum coming from? You need to get him out of the theater. People would gasp. I would stand on stage and tell people to get up. I, there, was an, there was an elderly woman who grabbed her purse and like searched for the door. Oh my God. They, and people literally told me after the show that they thought I was going to rob the place. 300 seat theater. I'm wow. standing there. Me. I'm going to rob the place. How did you get through that without saying, fuck this, I'm out of here? Oh, no. I said, fuck this. And I said, I'm going to show you your prejudice. And I'm going to show you how idiotic you are. And my my entrance got more grander. It got more badder. It got tougher. Like, it went from me, Tramiel, walking in as a character to me from, from Southeast Anacostia, Berry Farms. Like, fuck what you heard. I'm here. What you got? Like, it was just... Just brash. Wow. You made lemonade out of lemons. Yes. Well, I, and then I you wish... took the lemonade and you shoved it in their face. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I wish I could say, wow, you're the first person of color we're having on our program who's describing a theater school experience, but actually every single person of color that we've interviewed has had, unfortunately, a very similar story to tell. Now, what I'm curious about is, did anything change to your knowledge from the time you started till now at that school? There was many instances where we had conversations about, you know, issues like this, about racial equality, having conversations um, about how to deal with one another. Um, Microaggressions were were shared. Actions were, were done. And I honestly, I had to pick my battles. You know, I had to figure out what's more important. Am I going to get through this program or I'm going to like annihilate every white person? Right. Who is just saying something sideways into the left? And I feel like there's also like a thing that happens um, where people, yeah, you have to choose your own survival at a certain point rather than try to educate 
be have the one person you know black man of color trying to fucking change a whole goddamn university is like yeah. asking a bit much and also you just got to get the fuck out and then maybe yeah. you can make changes later once you're you've you've grown and now you have whatever inner resources yeah. to be like this shit was fucked up which is what we do yeah. we're like talking to people and getting their stories later and being like oh this was fucked up let's see yeah. if it's changed okay so you graduated did you did you yeah. Did you get? Do you feel like you got acting training that you really liked at the school? Oh God, yeah. Okay. Oh God, yeah. Um, and and just one thing I wanted to say um, to add on to that, Jen, and anyone who's listening, it's not our job to educate anybody. It is not our. It is not our job. It's their job to educate themselves. Period. Um, so, but it took me a while to get to that point where I was like, okay, this is not my problem. I am becoming the punching bag for the result of the problem but this is not my no, issue so it's not. let me go do what i need right to, and know? the other thing i just a really yeah. quick our theater school experience um i had a boyfriend at the time who was white and i mm-hmm. went to visit his parents and they were making jokes about latino uh, cleaning ladies and doing voices and all this stuff and after and i said nothing and then afterwards he said to me why didn't you speak up why didn't you tell my parent and i said why is it and I was like, oh, I'm ashamed. And then I was like, why the fuck didn't he speak up? Yeah, exactly. If he knew that was an issue, why didn't he Anyway, so? so that's the whole yeah, thing I about people both. trying to change. Anyway, okay. Yeah, so I you, hear you. But okay. to answer your question, I, I did. I got a lot of uh, really valuable tools um, in grad school that helped me um, build characters much that I used while I was doing severance, you know, um, that toolbox. So there was a lot of quality training and a really tender experience that I had, but it made me tougher. It made me stronger. I can't say that um, that being on set nowadays, it's much different. You know, severance is primarily white, you know, um, back, you know, behind the camera. Um, it's primarily male. It's primarily straight male. Um, so it's like being in these environments, it's like, I knew that walking into this, I could either let this control me and and hamper me or I can let it bolster I can let it feed me so that I know that all the environments that I am going to be in I'm not going it's not all going to look like me so it's like Tramel what are you going to do how are you going to use this to allow this to fuel you forward so uh, you don't have to answer for for severance but um I did wonder about that when I was watching the show I did think is was how intentional was this um, to make you know? I guess is it is? Are you the only black character? No. No, no, no. But there's only a few, right? Yeah, was, it's a it's a handful. How intentional was it on behalf of the writers? And I've never really looked into anything about the writing of the show, so maybe that'll be my homework for later to figure out if that sure. was a intentional stance. But um, so now when you are. On my favorite show. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's her favorite show. T- just talk to it. me about, I, I want to know about the experience of auditioning and how excited you were about it from the first time you read the material and callbacks and all that stuff. I'd love to hear a good audition story. Yeah. Um, so as far as whether or not the intentionality of the racial makeup of the show was there, that I'm not sure about. I really did appreciate that when we saw... Kier, the town of Kier, outside of Lumen, we started seeing multiracial faces. Even in um, O&D, we saw multiracial 
faces. And I appreciated that. Um, so, and I wonder as the season continues or the seasons come on that we'll start to see more people of color. And it's just this town where there's a mosh pause of different cultures, which I am hoping for. Yeah, you know? that would be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so when it comes to the, the audition process, so I came across Severance in 2019, near the end of 2019, while I was doing The Great Society. On, in Lincoln, in Lincoln Center. Center on Broadway. In Lincoln Center, yeah. Fancy, Broadway, fancy. Yeah. Yeah, that was my Broadway debut. It was so yeah. awesome. I didn't see it, but that's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. Lincoln Center. Were you scared? Oh, my gosh. I, I was, the, the tension was there, but I had a friend of mine who was at Lincoln Center and he was like, listen, the heated toilet seats with the bidet is going to change your Okay, life. so you were able to and like embrace the awesomeness. I, yes. Okay. I embraced it okay. and I enjoyed it. I'd so be like, I'm not going to sit on this toilet seat because they're going to fucking charge me. So I won't sit down. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So you're, you, you, you were, you, okay. You came across it at 20, uh, 2019 when 2019. you were doing the play. While I was doing the play, we got word that we were closing early because uh, it's a tough play. And um, I went to the audition and I didn't know what this was about. I wasn't sure. It was kind of eerie. But, you know, it's one of many auditions. You go, you do the thing and then you leave. And I went and did the thing and I left. And I got a call back. Was really, really excited because then I started to sink my teeth deeper into the character, into the show. And I had very, very limited information about the character. But I said, this is something I'm really excited about. I really want to make this work. And, and I knew that the callback was featuring or involving Ben Stiller and Dan Erickson. They were going to be in the room. <gasps> so I said, if nothing else, I get to be in the room with Ben Stiller. So this is like, this is great. So callback audition. <clears throat> I was running like. A few minutes late because of transportation. I was coming from Washington Heights and I was going into the Bronx because we film out in the Bronx. I basically ran on foot from one bridge to the other bridge to the other bridge. I was like in this industrial part of the Bronx. And like there was this guy, I was like, I was racing this guy who was had an old refrigerator in a shopping cart. And was looking at me weird, and I was running in a full suit, trying oh, to like we my. were like running neck and neck. It was that's so brilliant. Bizarre. That's brilliant right there. <laughs> I turned the corner, and these guys were standing there loading like um, rolls of carpet. And one dude stopped me. He's like, "Hey, you want to see me whoop this guy's ass?" And I turned around. I said, "You know, maybe later. I got to go to an audition." And then I ran, and they started laughing. And then I'm running across the bridge. People are looking like, "What the hell?" Then I finally get to the studio. The audition is on the other side oh, of no. the studio. Oh, no. So it's like oh, an no. acre long run. I'm like sweating and running. Oh, and, no. And I get there and it's perfect because the way the audition is set up, no one knew what time I came in. So it was like I could just sit and just kind of sign in. Yeah. And then it was. There was no like so monitor was, there like. No. Mr. Stiller's. Did you have to rush right into your, did you have to rush right into the meeting? Okay. No, I was able to just sit and breathe, wipe the sweat off the brow. So, can we ask you something? Uh, When you hear that um, Ben Stiller's going to be in your callback, like I had a a, a similar thing when I was still acting a lot where they did that. They said Lily Wachowski from Wachowski Sisters from Matrix is going to be in your audition with um, some other people. And it threw me so much 
that mm-hmm. I was how how are you able to and this is why I really don't do a lot of acting anymore because I'm not sure. able to get over my fucking self. So how yeah, are you able to hard. be like you know what I'm going to do my job regardless of like you you seemed excited that Ben Stiller was going to be there. How? I was. Oh hey, so like what do you do internally to be like you know what I'm walking into the room with Ben Stiller I'm going to fucking do my job. How do you get yeah. there? Well, one, of course, I prepared. I prepared like hell. And I think I harassed every person I knew to help me run these lines <laughs> so that I wouldn't allow the nerves to take over. Two, I changed my perspective of the room. I realized that this was my time. And this was an opportunity for them to get to know me. And they are fortunate to get to know who I am as an actor, you know? And then I also changed my view of Ben Stiller and Dan Erickson. And I said to myself, they're not rooting against you. They want you to solve the problem. So they're rooting for you. Right. I I think it's like making people a member of your team versus, and a collaborator versus they are in power. And I feel like... Uh, for a lot of, of like other communities and women and other it's so hard to feel like I belong I'll speak for myself in the room yeah. with these fancy people but like yeah. if I could do that what you're what you did I probably yeah. would have worked a fucking fuck ton more than I did <laughs> as an actor because I couldn't get over it but you were able to like center yourself and like these people are on my team yeah. But you're also telling us that you've been doing this your whole life. I mean, it, every story yeah. you've told me so far, you, you sound very self-possessed. You sound very, I, I mean, the, those of us, the people who listen to this podcast know that we, we spent really the majority of our lives feeling like we had no idea what was going on and only mm-hmm. are now in yeah. middle age getting to the point where we feel like we have a little bit more agency and understanding sort of our role that we play in our, in our own lives. But it feels to me that going back to sitting in biolab and saying, this is not for me, and also not to mention your, your mom giving you this devastating news and that not being an obstacle to your success yeah. that, you, that, yeah. you, that you viewed that sure as a challenge, but something that it sounds like you thought you were equipped to take on this challenge. So this sense of self-possession, have you always had it? Did you have to develop uh, oh, it? Oh, 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 God, no. No. I, for me, this is this is operating out of a sense of you cannot fail. You have to succeed. You have to figure it out. Like because the option is like wallowing in a gutter somewhere and you know falling to pieces or succumbing to to the darkness in that way. You know, so it it was like you get your ass up and you figure your shit out. For me, you know, Um, and whether or not the self-possession, I think the self-possession came along the way. You know, there's that thing you fake it till you make it, you know, Um, but I I didn't always have it. And, you know, I'm still working towards it because this industry is 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 so hard. And, And if you don't have the confidence or the support or the sense of community, it can it can ruin you because there is so much rejection. And there is so much waiting and uncertainty. Okay, you know? so you okay, yes, absolutely. So you walk into that room, you you you're they're like, it's your sir, it's your time. And so you walk yeah. in there and what happens at the callback? So I walk in, I sit down, I do the scene uh, with Helly's um, Helly's party. Yeah. You know, so we're doing that scene. 
and I make Ben Stiller laugh. Woo! <laughs> that is like amazing. And I said, if I don't get the part, and if like I don't know, Mahersha Ali gets cast in this part, you know, that's fine. But you know what? I made Ben Stiller laugh. Amazing. Wow. That's fantastic. By the way, the yeah. image of you running alongside this man with the grocery cart. <laughs> I love the poetry of this, right? Because you were describing like if you had let things um, pull you off your track, if you had let yourself yeah. be felled by your obstacles, you could have been a person, you know, running down, maybe not, maybe not running down the street with a grocery cart, but you could have, I mean, in that lane there and you're running up Broadway or whatever it was into the Bronx. You could have been in a different position that you were in, and it's sort of your own perseverance in part that yeah that got you it's through. A, okay, so you yeah, made you made absolutely. Ben Stiller laugh, and then you you leave, or did they have you do another scene? I believe they had me do another scene. I can't remember the other. scene. It doesn't matter. We a, we, yeah, know, yeah. we know what happened. Something good. Yes. So you leave. They say thank you so much for coming. You thank leave. You so much. It's been a pleasure. And then did your I, agent is your agent like you're on Checkavail right away? Well, so. I leave. I, I well before I leave. I ask what happened next. Like you know, so what? What do y'all do now? And they said, well, then we're going to go audition guys for the role in L.A. So I said, oh, okay. So I wasn't the only. Right, well, so, here's the thing: you know. like you're so you're so fucking awesome and brave to ask them what happens next. My dumbass <laughs> runs out of there like I'd rather be fucking anywhere else. But you're like, hey, what happens next? Like, that is an adult thing to do. Okay, so they say we're going to L.A. And you're like, okay. We're going to go to L.A. You won't so I was like, all right, this is going to take a couple of days. And I said, all right, well, then, you know, well, good luck. And we'll be in touch. And I was like, yeah, we'll be in touch. Again, taking charge of the room. Yes. But not being a dick about no. it. No. Like, just like, you know, it's your time. It's your space. And letting them know that you're interested without being desperate. You know, that kind of thing. You know. Um, so then I leave. And I immediately, I wait till I get out of the studio and I call my team and I'm like screaming and I'm jumping up and down, you know, and, and they said, okay, well now we wait. And we waited. Uh, it probably was like a week and a half. Okay. That's uh, a Rachel long time. Tenner. It is forever. I love Rachel Tenner. I've worked with and, Rachel Tenner before. I love her. She's, she, she's yeah. amazing. She knows she used to be yeah. in Chicago and that's where we're from. That. Oh yeah. And she, you Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And so, um, anyway, so Rachel Tenner's office, did Riley Ra- call you? I don't know who it was. Anyway. No, no. They, so Rachel called my manager and was, they were talking about something else. They were talking about another project. Cause you know, of course they have other people they represent and, she was, they were about to get off the phone and Rachel says, oh, Tigran, my manager, yeah. you know Tramiel got the part, right? <gasps> and it's like just offhanded, just like, you know he got it, right? And I'm like, and then Tigran calls me and he was like, and, and he calls my agent. So my agent and my manager are on the phone. And I know that's either really good news or really bad news. Yeah. This is either one or the other. So I was like, okay, y'all are both on the phone. What's going on? Tell me what's going on. And it's like, are you ready? And I was like, yes. He's like, you booked it. You're going to be yes. on Severance. So I'm like, Wah! That's so awesome. And also, <laughs> let me just tell you something. The, the, it's interesting because this business is so wackadoo. Like, uh, in mm-hmm. that, in that, um, Rachel just, it's like an, it's like a, a little things that, that they're just living their life, but mean yeah. so much to other people. Yeah. So like yeah. her, like, you know, this, and, and, and she's just doing her job. But like yeah. for, for us on the other end of that, it's like my whole life just changed by an offhanded comment to to my manager. 
Mm-hmm. And do you have mm-hmm. a, a practice yeah. that you do when you're, because sometimes it's a lot longer than a week you have to wait. Do you yes. have a practice, something that you really try to do in the waiting? Because I find the waiting to be so excruciating. I obsess. <laughs> no. Um, I, re- I just eat I, everything. <laughs> <laughs> Eating my feelings. No, I, I, I really try to do what I can to let it go and move on. I try not to think about it. I usually don't tell people about auditions. I stop doing that because then people ask about it. And then I'm starting to obsess about the audition and did I do this? So I, when I go for an audition, I just go do it. And then I take the, the sides and I throw it away. And then that's symbolic for me and representative of me to, of me letting this go. And if I don't hear back, I don't hear back. And I just move on. And you're on to and the next thing, right? Well, on to the next thing. And So, okay, yeah. so it was a week and a half. Rachel, your, your team calls you. You're like, yeah. and do you feel in that moment like your whole life is about to change, has changed? Oh, my gosh. Okay. I, said, I said in that moment, I said, 2020 is going to be the best year. Oh, shit. <laughs> Oh, shit, that's right. It's I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting it's about. Bad. I'm forgetting about what year it was. Oh yeah. my fucking! I got the gig in January of 2020. I remember the day that I found out that we weren't doing it. I went in for a fitting. I went in for a fitting. It was my first fitting. They had all these suits lined up, belts and thud and socks and shoes. It was great. I said, "This we're building the character. This is coming together." At the tail end of the fitting, a PA comes in and says, there's an emergency meeting. We all need to um, go in. I was not invited to the meeting. I walked out. The studio was vacant. Nobody was there. Everybody was in this meeting. I get an email saying, we're going to pause production for two weeks. And I, and I thought in my mind, I said, there's no way in the world it's going to be two weeks. So it turns into eight months. We pick back up September, October. We're part of the first production to start back up. And um, we're, we're navigating it as best we can. We're following CDC rules. We're, we're doing everything that we can to keep everybody safe. Our COVID specialists were fantastic. Um, but it was, it was nerve-wracking because there weren't vaccines available at that time. And this was the only profession that you could accomplish your work. The only way you could do it is no mask. So we had to be maskless in order. And, you know, Patricia Arquette has even talked about vocally how it was stressful for her because she was like yelling in people's faces as Cobell. And it was like, I don't know if I'm giving you something and if you're giving me something, it's, it was bananas. Um, But we pushed through. I mean, it took us 11 months to film the first season. Um, but we finished it and we got it done. I'm so glad, by the way, you mentioned fitting and your costume because your costume is actually one of the most interesting parts about your character. That didn't come off the way I meant it. I meant to say, I find your costume (laughs) so much more integral to your character than necessarily any of the other characters. It's so perfect. Was it a collaboration? Did you say, no, I want the short sleeves? What t- tell, tell us about your costume. Oh, I love that. So Sarah Edwards, who's our wardrobe uh, costume designer, uh, worked with Ben Stiller, of course, to try to figure out who Milchik was. Uh, and I, in the process, was kind of going along for the ride because, of course, they had more intel about sure. Milchik and, of course, in the world, right? Right. So originally, we started with the jacket. And you noted, and that was in the first episode you notice the jacket never comes no back. never ever 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 
Ben was so in love with the short sleeve white shirt, was so specific. He said, this is the look. I want to go with this look. So we kept that. I was very finicky. I was very selective about the ties. I wanted the tie to be shaped a certain way, tied in a very specific way. Um, The pants were like up on the belly button. You know, that was very specific. Very clean, pristine shoes. Everything was, you know, intentional. You've talked several times about creating the character and giving like the dignity to the character. When I think a lot of people just go in and say the lines and do the thing. And not that they're not bad, that they're bad actors. They're good actors. But you really like care about crafting the world of your characters, which is a whole nother level, which means that (laughs) you're giving the dignity of, you know, to your characters. And I think it comes across in the show. It's like, a you. you just buy in. I just buy well, it. The, what, one of the things I really like about your costume is, you know, with the short sleeves, you, it's, it's this nod to a physicality that you have, right? Later mm. in the season, we're going to see you sprinting. So it, it, it kind of fits that you, you, that you have to be sort of, you have to be physically, the character has to be physically ready for anything. Mm-hmm. And, um, in this world that's so um, everything is so circumscribed and utilitarian, I feel I feel like it really works. What did you mean about the tie? You had a certain way you wanted to have it tied. Like you, you had opinions about that. Oh yes, because I, I I felt that that was part of the pristine um, of Milchek, and you know there's different knots you can make with a tie, but I wanted it extremely triangular and clean and crisp and wanted to make sure that that dimple, I wanted him to have a dimple in the tie. So, you know, the, um, the dressers would always ask, do you want us to tie the pre-tie the tie for you? Or do you want to do it yourself? And I said, this is part of my process. The building Milchek is how he ties his ties. So it's very, it's brilliant. very clean. It's just yeah. like so thoughtful that I, it's just, when I get on set and I look around, there are people like mm-hmm. you on set and I'm like, this person, this is what they're supposed to be doing. This is like, remember we talked about the fire, right? Like, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is your yeah. fire. The, your juice is there. And they, it's like, I, I had the same, similar thing working with someone named Jimmy Simpson, who's like worked all over. But like, mm-hmm. like you, I feel like, I feel like the same with you when I wa- would watch you on set. I bet I would be like, oh, this is their world. This mm-hmm. is where they shine. They can do a bunch of things. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm yeah. saying is like, you're meant to to be on set creating this world with these people. And it's interesting, you sprint later, right? And you also yeah. sprinted to the uh, to the callback. Like, it, does, it was your role. <laughs> like, this is your role. I love like, that. this is your world. And you belong there. And yeah, I, ah, oh, man, it's just so cool to hear. So, because um, your character, we see a lot less of what your personal, like your sort of your inner life is, how does that affect the work that you're the actor work that you're doing do you have you just built your own story that you have internally that may or may not continue to be reflected as the seasons go on and the story goes on maybe we are going to learn a lot more about Mr. Milchick's like personal life but how did you approach the acting work with that in mind it definitely increases the the acting work when you don't have a lot of backstory but that's that's where the creative juices flow for me. And that's what I get excited about, you know? Um, I've always said that 
I've never really been enthralled with playing the romantic lead. I always like playing the supporting or the villain because they always have the the most intense story. They're the most interesting, you know? So with this show, because I wasn't sure the tone of it, we were building it, finding it, it was up to me to kind of make sense of it and connect the dots. It's like, why would this man with a name like Seth Milchek, a black man, specifically, he is specifically black, work at this company that has a history of white men and a few women taking rule over it in a small town that is governed by Lumen in a way. Why would he do this? And how does he fit into this world? How does, how does it make sense? So for me, it was a lot of trial and error. I was doing a lot of research. I was trying to find, you know, um, looking into cults, looking into military, you know, all of these things to, to, make, the, to make sense of this. Because um, he is extremely specific. And I didn't want him to, to become a caricature, nor did I want him to become a clown. Yeah. And, you know, Dan and Ben were very, we were all agreed on that. But if you, like, listen to the language and you see the world, it's easy for it to slip into that, right? So you have to, we're towing that line often to try to figure out what is the smart way to you tell know, this story. It's so interesting to me. Like, you talked before about Hollywood and, like, uh, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to become a television writer was to be in the room creating the world from day one, down, 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 down at the ground level. <laughs> and I think in a show like Severance, it really shows that, I, I don't know the makeup of their writer room, I have no idea, the writer's room for Severance, but I'm assuming that Ben wrote the pilot, whatever. The point is, no, who wrote the pilot? Dan. Dan, Dan. Dan. So Ben didn't yeah. write it at all. Okay, okay. But no. the thing is, like, I I just think the specificity involved in... This is what makes shows work for me, is the specificity. And I think it starts from the pilot and the showrunners and then how they uh, work with the cast who creates the world, a la, you know, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad and um, Ozark and all those things. You can tell. It is like a fucking group collaboration where everyone has has bought in. Like, everyone is on board, and everyone seems to be... And I think the writing really helps with that. It's like that you can always stand behind the script, and maybe if there's questions... I don't know, this is a question for you. Were you able to say, like... If, if something felt weird in your mouth or if you were like word wise and if you were, were you able to have discussions like that with the writers or like? Absolutely. See? Absolutely. Dan, Dan was on set every day. Ben uh, was on set and around. And what I loved about it is that there were, there were times where we could just stop and discuss and say like, what is this? What are we saying? You know, what about this language? Actually, there was a, there was a moment um, and I wish we had a photographer on set to capture this, but there was a moment in the elevator banks where there's these two seats there. It was me and Ben, and we were rewriting a scene together. I wish someone could capture that moment because I would like put that on my wall. And so it was like, that was the level of collaboration. And actually the scene that we were rewriting together, it was the, um, the basement, uh, uh, the stairwell scene where uh, Heli's coming in and out and I'm standing with her. So it was that scene where we were like trying to like, okay, what's the language? What makes sense? And then love that. Some of my favorite parts of this work that we do. Are they making a um, behind the scenes, like a 
documentary, you know how they do, they do like a featurette mm -hmm. about the making? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope so. I haven't heard anything, but I hope so. What I, what I really appreciate about this is that one, you were able, it sounds like, to fully embrace your first like mega role I would call it on a on a yep. huge hit TV show you were ready it sounds like you were ready so like in casting my friend who works in casting says like she never says like oh they were bad or good they are ready for the part or not mm. quite ready for the part. Mm. And what I'm hearing mm. is, and I love that way of looking at it, because there are so many auditions I am not quite ready for. But <laughs> what it, I mean, clearly. But but what what the one? But you were you were ready for this role, and mm. I just want to let you know, like, because we have a lot of I teach at a conservatory a little bit, and I just always say, like, sometimes it takes a while to get ready for your role, and. It's sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but you, this is your role. Like, it's so clear. And so I guess my question is, like, not to jump too far ahead, but, like, what other roles? Like, what do you want to do with your career? Like, what do you, what's your dream oh. post, whenever? I hope Severance goes for a very long time. But you also, you. do you want to go to do stage? What's your, what's your dream? I mean, I want to have a career where I can pick and choose. Where I can do it all, where I can decide if I'm going to direct a film out in South Africa or if I'm going to join the writing room in in Nevada for a new series or if I'm going to do an eight season arc in Canada. Like I just or do a Broadway show for 16 weeks. I want to be in that place of autonomy because we are told often as actors and as artists that we don't have it, that we don't have the opportunity to choose. And I, I, I feel that's bullshit. We do. We do have a choice. We can say no. We can walk away. And listen, I've, there were many moments in my career where I said no. And I didn't have anything lined up and I didn't have the credits either. So it's it's willing being able to, you know, take those risks that leads things and having the autonomy. Um, I'm very big in nonprofit management and philanthropy. I want to continue in those works. I'm, you know, I support causes that LGBTQ causes, uh, mental health causes, um, educational equity um, and um, really want to see that come to light and want to continue that work as well. What are your favorite things about doing a television show versus your favorite things about doing theater? Mm. Favorite things about doing a television show, craft services. No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no I, I think my favorite thing is, is the challenge of understanding the audience Right. Because in television, usually the audience is you and the camera. So everything is a lot smaller. And with that scale, for me, things become more specific. And there are gestures, there are moments, there are pauses that are caught on camera that we might not see on on stage. What I love about stage is there's nothing like performing live. It's nothing like it, you know, um, and it and it tests it tests the will. I believe Felicia Rashad said, "Television gets you the money, film gets you the fame, and theater gets you the street cred," and that's real. If you could, if you're a theater actor, you got so many props because you can do 
you can do a lot of things. You can be big, and if you're big, you can be you you can know how to scale it back so that it translates on television. And it's show. true. It's harder to like bring out something that's not really there than it is to scale yeah. it back. Like if you, yeah, yeah, I always say like write to my students and stuff like write fat, be, you know, write big, do the big thing. We can always yeah. pull it back, but like yeah. if it's not there, you can't pull it from nowhere. So there you go. Is your mom still living? She is. And she so is. T- where is she now? Tell us about where she's come from, from calling mom. you and saying she couldn't help you financially. So my mom is in Houston, Texas. She is living with my sister and my brother-in-law and my beautiful niece and nephew, um, who's getting ready to graduate high school. <laughs> like, and I remember holding him in my arms in 2005. Anyway, um, but my mom, she's, she's doing really well. Um, I had the opportunity to spend Mother's Day weekend with her and um, seeing my family on both sides. Um, and she's just enjoying her day. She's getting ready to celebrate her 70th birthday. Happy oh, birthday. Wow. Oh, she's young. She's young. Yeah. She's a young lady. Very spry. Has she always known of your talent? I mean, were you a kid who was maybe singing and dancing or putting on shows when you were oh, little? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. There's so many characters in my family. We're all hams. <laughs> okay. All of us. All of us are hams. Um, but my... My desire to to take film was uh, or take stage was always in small spaces. I only did it in my room, you know, and my mom saw that I had the talent and skill set. And she said, you need to utilize this. And so she pushed me and challenged me. She was my first acting coach. Really? Was she an Uh, actor too? She taught me how to act. Well, she never got paid to be an actor, but she has the personality. She's got the verb and she, she knows what works and what doesn't. She was like, I don't believe you. This is not working. You know, you got to get into the character. I got to believe you. I want to see the passion, you know. <laughs> oh, so she like, must okay. be so gratified to see you on television now. I mean, because it's a real, I mean, the thing about the show is, it, 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 Severance, you, it's all good actors because you really cannot fake your way in this show. This show, because of the tone of what you were describing, how about it's hard to find the tone. When something has a tone like that, if you don't know exactly what you're doing with your character, at all times it really shows and it really sticks out like a sore thumb right yep and you've absolutely. got those john Turturro and oh my god did you get did you, did you been able to watch them do their stuff we can be being, being on know, set and watching john Turturro and well when i was able to right you know because with covid we try to keep people separate as much as possible um but some of my favorite moments on set was just watching Patricia Arquette and Adam Scott and John and Chris and, you know, the office scenes, just sitting them, watching them interact with one another because I learned so much, you know, I'm listening to the, to the voices and the placement I'm for the pauses and the breath and all of that. It's just, I'm absorbing all of that. And I love that. I love it. I I love watching masters at work and you, and I have a feeling I would watch you the same way. When I'm on set and I watch someone that is just doing their, they're just freaking pros. And I'm like, oh, this is it. This is what, <laughs> this is the thing that we're all trying to do. But it's not easy. And it takes no, practice and it takes work. <laughs> and it's not yeah. just being a beautiful person. You actually have to fucking work your ass off. And you, yeah. you know. 
And you know how they yeah. say, like, with Ella Fitzgerald, her thing was, yeah, she had a great voice, but really it was her phrasing and some of the, mm. the greatest uh, singers. It's, it's yeah, it's the quality of their voice, but it's the way that they phrase things. And actually, your show is full of actors who make unusual choices with phrasing and, ca- yeah. you know, sort of cadence and structure. It makes it yeah. so riveting to watch. Well, okay, so tell people where they can find you. Tell people what you've got coming up. I know you're on social media, so tell people where they can find you. Yes, I'm on Instagram, Tillman. I'm there. Um, catch me on Apple TV+. Plus. Watch Severance if you haven't. Enjoy it. Um, where else am I? What else is well, going wait, on? Wait, are you film? What's where? Where are you in filming? Like, what's happening with the show? I mean, you don't have to no spoilers, but like, are you done? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what is the future? What's happening? So, um, maybe possibly season two will be in the fall. Okay, you know, we'll still see. waiting to get yeah, but it's coming. Season okay. two is coming. Okay, great. Because that's was my. I was like, well, I don't want any. Please don't ruin my day. Because that would be a really bad way to end this. No, um, no. And then do you still, like, while you're doing a show like this or while it's on hiatus or whatever, are you auditioning for a million other things? Or is your oh, team? Yeah. Oh, great. I mean, we're still going. We're still, uh, we actually, while I was in L.A. doing FYC, you know, it's oh, yeah. Emmy season, um, I was filming a pilot um, uh, called Ramble On. I can say this now because it's, it's out. Uh, Ramble On uh, with Doug Ellen. Oh, yeah. Um, Kevin Connolly and Kevin Dillon, you know. Um, so What's it about? So, Kevin Connolly and Kevin Dillon are embarking upon doing an, a podcast. You know, they're they're coming off of what is it, ten years since Entourage, and so their life has changed since. And so um, they're finding other people to be a part of this podcast. And I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there's a lot of uh, big names that are a part of this as well. liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.